everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today we tackle a topic a little on the outside of traditional fintech, credit investing. My guest is Aaron Lyons, head of U.S. investment-grade credit at Credit Sites and a proud Wharton alum. Credit Sites is one of the top research firms in the world, serving the world's top institutions and produces over 300 credit reports a month. In today's episode, Erin and I trace her path across Wall Street to credit sites, what she saw during the COVID crisis and the advice she gave her clients, her outlook on the coming year, their acquisition by Fitch, their own recent acquisition of a Singapore fintech, and more. Let's get started. Hi, Erin, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's always great to have an alum on the show. So how is your new year and uh, where are you quarantining at the moment? Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me and Happy New Year to you as well. We are still quarantined. We're actually in Western Massachusetts, which is a great place to have some wide open space and ride this out. That's great. And then actually in the the pre-show discussion, she was mentioning that she has some wild animals just hanging out in the backyard, some porcupine visiting and maybe a few other animals. Quite nice. Yes, it's it's certainly different from uh, the city life we were living. (laughs) Yeah. So to begin, can you just walk us through your background? It seems you've spent almost your whole career really in credit and fixed income. You know, what drew this interest in career path coming out of Wharton? So it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years, but I think I first became interested in credit while I was working at AIG in Philly while I was at Wharton. And there I was working on a team that underwrote surety bonds. So I had to underwrite credit risk. When I was a senior at Wharton, I was thinking about career opportunities and I was wanting to work for a company that built something and did something. And I wanted to return to the Midwest, which is where I'm from. But then I had an opportunity to interview for a risk management job at Deutsche Bank. And I think was really appealing to me is it had a several month training program and an international rotational component to it. So I thought, yeah, this could be great. Go live in London for a while. So I took it. While I was doing risk management, my older brother, who's also a Wharton alum, was working in high yield bonds in LA. And he really encouraged me to get some market experience. From the risk team, I switched to sell-side research at Deutsche, covering a number of sectors, including merchant power and technology. Um, it was great, really fun to work with the traders and clients and share thoughts on what we thought would happen in the market. After six years at DB, I went to JP Morgan to become a senior analyst, again, covering tech companies. That was great, but this was 2008 and JP Morgan acquired Bear Stearns. So that was my first lesson in (laughs) M&A. Most of my group was disbanded. So, you know, it was in the middle of this intensifying credit crisis and financial crisis, and I needed to find a role. So I landed at a small credit, long short credit hedge fund which was a great opportunity for me to really learn and take advantage of dislocations in the market. I joined Leverage with my analyst background to help find trade ideas and then eventually became a PM there. However, kind of also still in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we were not large and we did not put up gates. We had strong performance, and what happened is investors were able to pull their cash out of us because we were one of the only funds allowing them to do so. So here I was looking for a role again. So lesson learned, you know, always be nimble and always be willing to look at different opportunities and take some risks. 
My next chapter was to move to Citigroup, where I was a strategist on the sell side. And I was the single name expert, so to say. I was the one that would work with our credit strategists to say, hey, we like triple Bs, and here's how we would execute those ideas. Credit or Citigroup was a great place to be, but at the time I left, my older two kids were five and three. And I just thought, you know, making sure I was on the desk by 6.45 every morning was getting a little bit more difficult. So next, we're at the Credit Sites chapter. This is where I've been for about seven years. I'll keep this one short. I joined as a tech analyst. I became the U.S. credit strategist. And over the past few years, I've begun to wear many more hats. I publish research. I lead our engagement and marketing efforts. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about investors and how we as a firm can be more integral to their processes. So there's my 20 years and a quick summary. (laughs) I'll add not to leave him out. I did add a third child to the mix five years ago. (laughs) So if he does listen at some point, he gets a mention as well. Right. We'll have to turn them into listeners of the Wharton FinTech podcast for sure. (laughs) So for our listeners who aren't familiar, what exactly is Credit Sites and what problem is it trying to solve out in the market? So Credit Sites is an independent credit research firm, and we provide information, views, and recommendations on market sectors and credits. Our clients really use these to help them make investment decisions and manage their risk. Got it. And who, you know, you don't necessarily have to name names if not, but who are some typical clients that you have at these family offices, institutions, banks, hedge funds? All of the above. We have a wide range of financial players who count us as their clients, everyone from the sell side, the buy side, we have government agencies, we have corporates who are managing their either pension or treasury portfolios, and wealth management, just to name some. We have some sovereign wealth funds. That's always fun to go visit some of their offices. And and really, we provide a lot of value to our clients because we are that almost outsourced research team that they can use. The other thing I'll just add too is we have clients that are the largest you can think of in the asset management space and all the way down to kind of single person investors that are looking for color on what bonds they should be buying for their portfolios. You know, one thing that I think makes us stand out is that we are independent and we do not manage any of our own assets, nor are we paid by issuers. Our clients are subscribers and our research can be consumed in a number of ways on our website, via email alerts, via an API feed, and also you can access it via Bloomberg right now as well. Great. That kind of led me right to my next question. So you <laughs> said subscribers. So do all of your clients kind of just have a subscription or is there a la carte options? How do they engage really with credit sites? So we are just a subscription service. So they can access us through the website, through the email alerts, where we've been able to develop different solutions for our clients is via kind of API feeds. And we can componentize almost parts of our research reports and deliver it in a way that the clients want it and something that they can best use it. Got it. So kind of transition to the fintech angle. Fixed income, at least I would maybe assume is a bit more traditional in a way compared to equity markets, maybe a little bit less sexy at times and new disruption. Every single person always seems to have a grasp of the equity markets credit and fixed income always a little bit more sophisticated in a way. How is fixed income using fintech or any providers that you're using and credit research as well for any of their research? 
So I think there's a couple of things that we're seeing currently in the fixed income markets. One is just on trade execution. So one of the big shifts that we've seen over the past several years is really the growth of the e-trading platforms. One of the things I constantly heard as a challenge for our clients is that there wasn't liquidity in the market and they might be holding bonds that they didn't want to own, or rather they weren't able to buy when they had cash to burn because there just wasn't transparency and they weren't able to find it. So now that we've had these e-trading platforms really grow and take over a greater share of the market, I don't hear that complaint as much. So I think that's a big change that we've seen. I'd say generally in the credit markets, they still are very labor intensive. So there are a lot of our clients and just managers in general who are doing the work on the individual credits, trying to figure out what position in the curve is the most attractive, what's the the right price. And you mentioned equities. And I think one of the reasons fixed income is, is different from equities is there's so many more components to consider. You need to think about your coupon, what the yield is, the price, the duration, et cetera. So it still requires a human touch to evaluate those. Where we are seeing clients really deploy tech is building more sophisticated models to try to look at their portfolio construction and figure out what kind of risks they should be taking. I'm sure, as you know, there is this massive search for yield right now because nothing in fixed income is is paying anything attractive. So investors are extending and they're working to build models that help them really manage that risk. Got it. So as you said, it really is such a high-touch intensive business. So let's say when you first see a new security come across your desk, your team does, what are maybe the three things that you look at first that you really drill in on to try and start you know, developing a thesis about the security? So there's a couple of things. First, we would just look at the issuer and look at the financials, do a quick credit fundamentals and see how healthy it is, how much cash is it generating, what are its obligations. I think COVID has thrown a very big wrench into kind of the projections for these companies and how to evaluate them. But that's what we would do first is just get a sense of the company. Once we feel comfortable with the credit risk, we then do a relative value analysis of that specific security and figure out, is this paying you something attractive compared to peers? Is it in a part of the curve that we think is in demand? Is there risk that rates might kind of whack your returns if you're buying something that's a third year? So there's a mental checklist that we all go through to kind of fit whether or not we like a bond or Got it. So 2020, I mean, must have been a whirlwind year for you and your company. I'm sure every listener is now thinking about what happened in March and April and how much, you know, it must have sent any researcher in such kind of a, a rush to look at all of the data. Almost every company faced or at least thought they were going to face a credit crunch. Can you just talk about, let's say, March 15th to April 15th, what your team saw from these companies and how you were handling all this change? Yeah, it certainly was a wild ride, and it certainly feels much longer ago than even just March of last year. We had a number of things that kind of triggered, so to speak, in the credit markets. The things that investors were very worried about for years, saying like, this is going to be the downfall of the credit markets, and a lot of them hit. So of course, there was the concern about COVID, the lockdowns, but on the market side of things, we saw something really interesting start to happen. The credit curve inverted slightly, meaning that the bonds maturing in the near term 
were priced higher at higher spreads than the bonds do in 10 years. And that immediately just sent a very negative signal, basically saying the market's concerned about kind of near-term default risk. Liquidity was pretty poor, so investors couldn't sell when they needed to. Mutual fund redemptions hit really hard, and those were scaring the market as well. And it was really just kind of a panic mode. No one knew how bad it would get. And investment-grade companies, which is the market I focus on, generally are fine. You know, you're not worried about default risk for IG companies. We had to dust off our models and build out very detailed projections for some of these issuers to see if they could get by. You add in the fact that there's been this massive borrowing binge over the past 10 years. So the maturity stack was pretty big. At the start of 2020, we counted about $850 billion of USIG bonds that needed to be refied during the year. So just putting that in context too, it, you know, it was enough to kind of really make people panic. I think what investors really wanted to know is when the selling would end and when they should start buying. I remember having late night calls with our Asian clients and I noted that when I was getting asked by every client when I should start buying, like I don't have to call the widest spreads. I was like, okay, this market's going to be okay. Yeah. So your team was digging into a ton of detailed research here. What do you think surprised your team the most in their findings? Great question. I think the Fed's bazooka response to the markets was the most surprising. So you know, I don't think we were that surprised that the Fed was going to extend lending lines to corporates. But what did surprise us is that they were going to buy corporate bonds for the first time. The ECB has been doing this for years, but the Fed was going to wait in. In fact, what I'll say to clients, though, in hindsight, looking over all of 2020, the thing that the Fed did best that was most influential on the market is that they communicated extremely well. So they didn't actually buy that many bonds. They authorized up to $250 billion of purchases. They've done about $15 billion, and the program expired oh, wow. at the end of December. Yeah, they didn't actually do much. But anytime we had a wobble in the market, we had the Fed come out and expand its program. It expanded to include fallen angels. It loosened the parameters around who could borrow. And kind of for a while, there was something where a corporate had to attest that they were going to use the proceeds in a certain way. They removed that. And I think just communicating really gave investors so much comfort. I also think investors overlooked the fact that they were only buying bonds five years and in. And over half of their purchases were just in ETFs. So again, best thing the Fed did, I think, was communication last year. I think on the industry side, what I was really surprised to see is how well most issuers fared during 2020. If you go back to the massive unemployment numbers we had early in the year, the economy held in pretty well. I think without the stimulus rounds that we've had, we wouldn't be in the same position. I think without the Fed's programs, forbearance programs, where they allowed borrowers to kind of push off payments, did a lot to support. Because of that, there was cash to spend. And we saw many of the companies and sectors in the USIG market in particular do pretty well. Telecom did well, you know, utilities were fine, banks were fine. And when you worry about retail, the largest borrowers in USIG are Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and Lowe's. And we all know that those companies had you know, very good 2020s. So I think 
takeaway on the industry side is that COVID wasn't that bad and everyone adjusted to this situation fairly well. Yeah, absolutely. Unless maybe you're an energy company and oil was going negative. Yeah. But energy had its own dynamics and it wasn't all due to COVID. I think only now are we starting to see some balance on the supply and demand front. A big thing we followed all year is OPEC plus and you know, Saudi Arabia was continuing to pump. And now it seems like that's they've curtailed production, which has been supportive to pricing. So energy, I mean, that's another thing. <laughs> There's negative pricing on April deliveries of crude. So certainly a lot happened last year. Yeah, absolutely. Did you see any, you know, really creative ways that companies covered their obligations? I think one really interesting one is that airlines leveraged their reward programs as collateral and insiders said, you know, airlines are really just reward programs with an attached airline business. Right. That is a great example. And I know when I saw that come across, I reached out to our airlines analysts and kind of said, are my air miles okay? <laughs> you know, what happens? I've built these up over the years and now I'm not going anywhere. That's a good one. I think for the U.S. market, the story was more just the focus on the amount of paper that priced. I mean, we had 1.8 trillion of USIG bonds priced last year. That's up 60% year over year. And I think it was a perfect storm of initially being concerned about liquidity constraints and wanting to make it through to then realizing that rates are incredibly low and we might not get the chance to refi at these levels again. So they just kept coming back to the cash register. We had some credits that came back two, three, four times last year. One thing we look at is the par-weighted coupon on the IG index is about 3.87% right now. The yield is 200 basis points lower. So for every bond that's rolling off on average, you know, they're saving an incredible amount from an issuer perspective. I think just the other lessons and opportunities we saw last year is companies are learning to live with more cash on their balance sheet and wanting to build up those liquidity cushions than say they would have run with historically. Got it. So moving forward to 2021, hopefully this is the year of recovery with the vaccine distribution already kicking off new successful regime change, the shock of the pandemic's over, businesses have kind of recovered in terms of at least their planning, the shock is gone. What predictions do you and your team have for the year ahead in credit markets? Great question. And it is outlook season. So good timing on that (laughs) as well. We actually went out with a negative view on the USIG market because of this low rate environment. Doing the math to see what returns you can generate is kind of depressing. Spreads are incredibly tight. They are about 100 basis points over treasuries. And the all-in is less than 2% yield. So you can't earn much. Because of that, I think things open up and are looking better. You're going to see investors looking elsewhere and looking to go into riskier assets, equities, private credit. I think it's still an attractive space for a number of investors to look at. And I think that's going to be the trend. I think high yield will do better than IG. Um, You're just starting with the much higher spread. So that's one of our predictions. I also think we're underestimating potential rate moves and we'll likely see a steepening of the treasury curve. We know that the front is going to be pegged by the Fed for a while. So getting a sense of just how steep that kind of tens and the 30-year bonds could get 
And then going back to IG, if you factor in just kind of how extended the duration is, that can mean pretty negative returns pretty quickly. So these are the things we're focused on. The other one, have to keep it on the radar. We have a new administration. I think when we looked at potential outcomes, even starting last spring of a blue wave scenario, we're constantly refining these to get a sense of what could be coming and what that means for credit markets. Tax reform is on our radar, and that could potentially be a 2021 event for corporates and individuals. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other implications of this potential blue wave coming this year that your team has thought about? I know some people think the administration might not be as aggressive as thought. What do you think might be playing out with Biden's administration? Yeah, it's going to be a tricky one, especially given the 50-50 split in the Senate. But I think you will see some pushing on environmental issues. So we already saw some, some actions that have impacted the pipeline sector. Keystone getting shut down. There's a current kind of pause on approvals for pipes on federal land. So that's kind of another headwind to the space. So I think environmental is going to be one. Healthcare is probably another one. We recently downgraded our recommendation on the IG pharma space to underperform because we do think there's going to be pressure on drug pricing that comes across this year as well. So those are some of the big ones that we're watching, but we're not taking the view that it's not going to be movement. There's certainly going to be different things to cover and pay attention to this year. Yeah, it's absolutely going to be a busy year. And (laughs) and speaking of busy year, just a few days before the recording of this episode, Fitch announced that it was going to acquire credit sites. And I actually learned while researching this episode that Fitch is owned by the media giant Hearst. Fun fact. So first of all, congratulations on the acquisition. But second of all, what does this mean for credit sites? Kind of why were they acquired by Fitch? Thank you. And I think just putting in context, when Credit Sites was founded, it was founded by Peter Pattis and Glenn Reynolds as they left Deutsche Bank to create this independent voice in the markets. So 20 years later, I'm excited for this next chapter. We'll be part of the Fitch Solutions business, which is separate from the rating side of things. And as part of Fitch, I think we'll have a lot of great opportunities to integrate with some of their products that should allow us to better deliver solutions to our clients. Fitch has a lot of things that we've wanted to build, and we're all just really excited about the combination of our market-focused views and their kind of sector and macro insights that can be really exciting for us. We're at the point where we're just starting to think about the integration, but already I can envision a lot of great collaboration and putting our heads together to create new products for clients that I think is something that's very exciting for both sides of us. Great. And then Credit Sites also purchased a Singapore-based fintech recently called AlphaStream. And AlphaStream provides AI and machine learning intelligence for financial services. Can you talk a little bit more about what AlphaStream does and kind of the rationale behind this transaction as well? Sure. So we have recognized that our analysts are very valuable assets to our business and our product. We're the ones creating the content. However, we were looking for ways to really improve our processes and make things more efficient. And this is where tech and AI come in. So being able to kind of glean from filings and documentations, financials or loan documentation terms really kind of has 
helped us become more efficient in doing the value add work that I think our team does best. So AlphaStream is a, a great company that does this and we're excited to partner with them to really help kind of boost our AI. We are using and working with AlphaStream on some of the complex agreements like bond offerings, loan docs, M&A agreements, and the key terms can be analyzed in a few minutes. Having been a high yield analyst earlier in my career, this did not take a few minutes, you know, take hours and hours and lots of cross-referencing. So it's exciting to have some help there. You know, also just allowing us to gather our own data and create massive databases of industry data, financial data that we can then use to come up with our products and deliver to our clients. That's great. Well, Aaron, you've entered the final round now of the episode, which is a rapid fire question round. We've got about 70 questions for you, max, just like five to 10 second answer each. Okay. Are you ready? I am. All right. First, favorite memory at Wharton? I think throwing toast. What, what is throwing toast? <laughs> do you not know what throwing toast is? I'm, I'm an MBA. It's a totally different <laughs> world from the undergrads. Uh, throwing toast, you go to the football game and you throw toast at football games. Like, like an old pen tradition. Like literal toast. pieces of toast. Yeah. At, at the opposing team on the field? Where are you throwing? On the field. Sing oh, the pen man. song. Oh, wow. Well, if there were a football season this past fall, maybe I would have seen it. True, true. But... <laughs> All right. All right. Second one. Uh, your finance hero or role model? I go back. I look at kind of what like Rockefellers and, and JP Morgan did, going back, envisioning this industry and, and what it could become. I think just being, having the foresight to start building. So how about, you know, first vacation you and the family is going to take, the whole world's vaccinated, world is wide open. What's the first trip? Okay. So good. This is an easy question because I feel like we have this discussion at the dinner table every night. (laughs) The kids vote is to go back to Disneyland over Disney World. But Disneyland is first. Very closely tied is, is a visit to my parents in Iowa. And then the one I would like to do is take the kids to Asia. We had a trip planned to Australia for last year. That obviously didn't happen. But I think kind of Japan is on our list. So maybe we'll try to get that done. Oh, that would be awesome. I was just in Japan two years ago. That was like my big trip before business school. Amazing place. You guys would have a blast. I was Um, supposed to present at a conference in Tokyo in mid-February of last year, right as COVID was starting. And it was literally a 24-hour before I was supposed to fly decision that our CEO made. He said, no, you're not going. So, Wow. (laughs) Right decision in hindsight. Yeah. Makes sense now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How about what you would be doing if you were not at credit sites? If I was not at credit sites, I would probably still be doing credit. I mean, I'm always thinking about how I can leverage my experience. And I come back to, I love the credit markets. I love talking about the markets. So I'd probably be doing a very similar role, just potentially somewhere else. How about funniest work from home moments so far? I mean, there's always the kids coming in. There's, I mean, now that we're kind of out in the woods, there's the internet going out. That's not been great, but we've, we've invested in locks for the doors. So at least we take care of one of those problems. All right. Now, final question, a little bit out there, but thoughts on cryptocurrency as an asset class? Oh, You know, this is a good question. One of my colleagues is also a Wharton alum and, you know, a couple, several years younger than I am. And he's all over this. I I don't pay a lot of attention to it. I'm sure there's a lot of K 
capabilities that are developing. So it's not going away, but I guess I'm not sure where it's going to be and how long it takes to get there. Well, and that's the end of the rapid fire round. Aaron, I want to thank you so much for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. Again, always great to have an alum on the show. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.